Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, we are here. We are your wonderful hosts. Cult expert Sadie Carpenter is here with you today. <laughs> hello, hello. Hello, hello, Sadie. And my name is Gavriel Hakoan. And we're so happy to be here with you. And we're so happy to be talking about this topic. Sadie, do you want to tell the people what the topic is today? Yeah, today we are going to give you, our listeners, a very broad and general rundown of the core beliefs of Calvinism. That's really exciting. Yeah, I'd say it's going to be broad and general because I am a cult expert. I am not a Calvinist expert. So I, that's my disclaimer from the very top. But I do think that we can give you a, a very basic primer on the belief system as a whole. Because this is one that people keep asking us to do because it's 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 a topic that keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. And so I'm glad that we finally get to cover it. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, hop right into the before we get into that and, and, and do that and we'll just... Let's do it. And so before we get into that, uh, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host, cult expert Sadie Carpenter's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show... You can hit that subscribe button or that follow button wherever you're uh, listening to this podcast on, and you will get that new episode right when it comes out every Monday morning. And it will also help uh, us by recommending that the algorithm will recommend our show to other people who listen to the same shows as you do. 
that's the easiest way that you can basically recommend our show to other people without even having to recommend our show to other people. Um, you can also join our Patreon where there is an extended and uncensored version of most of our episodes. Uh, and that is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast. And you can join our Facebook group or our subreddit. A Facebook group is called facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. Subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. Both are great places to join in the discussion with podcast fans. Anything else I got to say, Sadie, before I thank the patrons? I think we're good to go. Okay, well, I'm just going to go thank these patrons now. Thank these Faith Promise Mission. And I gave it all to your patrons. I gave it all to your patrons. As always, Kathleen Moncrief and Melissa Mosley. Love you guys so much. You guys are truly wondrous people. Our Faith Promise Missions here patrons are Alex Todd, Allison MacArthur, Anisha Patel, Brittany, Brooke Tolly, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dear Ethan Hansen, the musical, Eleanor Donahue, Elizabeth DeWorth, Emery Fairlosser, Hannah Ross, Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane. I'm just here to send Sadie True Crime Podcast Suggestions, aka Meg, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Jonathan Miller, Kay Terwee, Kristen Marie, Lauren Vanderwall, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Lorena Watson, MC Crunchwrap, hashtag the boy who crawled sauce, aka Justin Bowman, Michaela Upright, Madeline Antrim, Marlena Stuve, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Miranda Day, Rebecca, Rob the Methodist, Sarah Reese, Scooby Sleuth, Stephanie Johnson, Susie, Tara McNamara, The Lady Rabbi, Tiffany Enderby, Walnut, Son of Walnut, Wendy Dalton, cousin of uh, former James Bond actor Timothy Dalton. And finally, Wes the Cowboy. Thank you so much, Wes the Cowboy. Well, thank you so much to all of our I Gave It All tier patrons and Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, but also to everyone else who supports us on Patreon. We so appreciate that support that lets us put the amount of time and effort that we want to put into this podcast. And thank you to everyone who supports us on social media, people who support by following the podcast, sharing with a friend. Uh, We have the platform we have because our listeners are awesome. So thank you. Thank you to especially to our patrons, but to everyone else who supports us as well. And we really try to reward you guys with content that we think that you guys will like. And boy, do we have some good content coming up. So stay tuned to the end of the show when we preview what that content is going to be. Um, so we are are talking today. Uh, actually, do you want to hit us with a trigger warning? Absolutely. Uh, okay, go uh, for it. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least one of these topics, but we try very hard to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story that we're telling, and we do our best to give you a heads up before we do go into detail on any of these topics. In this episode, we are digging incredibly deep into salvation theology. And of course, that's going to include discussions of 
agonizing over whether you're saved or worrying about loved ones who don't follow your specific doctrines. Uh, We're going to talk about fears of hell and that sort of thing. We're also talking about total depravity, which brings up a lot of the guilt and shame about never feeling good enough. I will be reading a few scripture verses throughout the episode, but I'm going to try to use versions other than King James, unless it's a verse that I already have memorized in King James, because I feel like switching the Bible version can maybe help some people be less triggered. All right. Great, great uh, 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 TW there. Thank you for that. Well, I, you know, I can't predict what's going to get other people. If I could, that would make my life a lot easier. But I know what's going to get, what, what would potentially get to me if I didn't have a heads up. And I know what would potentially get to my friends who I talk to about these things if they didn't have a heads up. So I really do my best to to compile everything that people would need to be aware of going into an episode. Well, I do appreciate that. So let's, yeah, let's get into it, man. Uh, So what have you got to say about Calvinism? Well, unlike fictional alcoholic truck driver Ray LaFleur of Trailer Park Boys fame, I am not a Calvinist. Just had to clear that one up. Right. Uh, He, you know, it's all about the bacon and the sparrows, Rick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I I do want to say... Um, much like Ray on Trailer Park Boys, I'm explaining a doctrine that I don't know very much about. Uh, And this is one that I I don't ascribe to. I'd even say that I'm opposed to some tenets of Calvinism. But I'm going to try to be very diplomatic. This is not going to be an episode about me telling you all the ways that I think Calvinism is bad and wrong, because it's not inherently culty. It doesn't imply elements of the bite model in within the theological doctrine itself. So there are plenty of groups that would fall under the definition of a cult by the bite model that do espouse Calvinism, but it's not really Calvinism's fault. Just like you know, the IFB is, is a cult and, and very little of it is to do with the theology. So I am going to try to give Calvinism a fair shake. I don't want to misrepresent something, even if it's not my personal view. So I promise I'm doing my best. So I've noticed this recently and I'm sure you have too. And I'm sure that people who are like on, on theology, Twitter have noticed this as well. Calvinism is seeing a big resurgence at the moment. I feel like everybody on Christian Twitter these days is either debating the penal substitution versus ransom atonement thing that you have told us about a, a few times, or they're debating Calvinism. And I don't know why. I'm confused about this. I mean, I can tell you why I think it's huge on Twitter right now, but it's a pretty hot take. I do love your hot takes, okay. Sadie. I love it when they're they're made with with ghost pepper or or uh, Scotch bonnet pepper or habanero pepper. Hit me with those spicy <laughs> takes, Sadie. I'm all ears. Well, I think that Calvinism is the hot topic on Twitter right now because. Some really big thought leaders in Christianity, like John Piper, are strongly Calvinist, but it's still a minority doctrine by technicality. Less than 30% of Protestants identify as Calvinist. So no matter whether you come out strongly for Calvinism or strongly against it, there is room on both sides of the argument to make a quote-unquote stand for truth and gain the admiration of others for your strong stand. 
30% of Protestants uh, believing in a specific doctrine, that's a lot of people. That's a very large number of people. That's, I mean, that's large enough that it, while it's not the majority, it's definitely a minority doctrine. It's still something that could be considered mainstream. Yeah, and that actually really surprised me. I would not have thought it was as high as 30%. I would have said maybe 10 or 15. But that's what I mean by there being room on either side to make a name for yourself. Because if you come down strongly pro-Calvinist, there are a lot of passionate supporters who are going to like your take. And if you come down strongly anti-Calvinist, there are a lot of passionate supporters who are going to like your take. So there's there's a lot of space for people who are willing to be controversial to gain a following from talking about this. I think the other reason it's a hot topic online right now, though, and this is the hotter part of my take, this is the spicier part of my take, is that arguing over Calvinism lends itself very easily to name-dropping big words and obscure doctrines and lesser-known writers. So you can tweet something like, oh, you're not a Calvinist? Well, you must not have read Johannes Drakenberg's 1842 sermon on the Second Covenant then. Hmm. And I made there's no theologian named Johannes Drakenberg. I made him up, but um, <laughs> that but like, sounded you, real. I know. Uh, I I just I pulled that out of thin air. But you know, you can <laughs> you can pull a lot of the doctrines associated with this are like five dollar words. They're uh, the theologians associated with it are very fifteen um, hundreds guys and sixteen hundreds and seventeen hundreds. And they have fancy sounding names. And I think it's just a good way to make yourself sound smart. So it's like the hipster theologians brand of Christianity. Yeah. That's that's what I'm getting. But like actual hipsters, not like people who call themselves hipsters and their favorite band is Mumford and Sons. It's Christianity for people who have like an Elliot Smith tattoo. Right. And it's been so the fancy whiskey drinking three-piece suit wearing, cigar smoking type of dudes, you know, beard oil using type of guys Uh. have very much leaned into Calvinism. Um, (laughs) What is Jessa Duggar's husband? (laughs) Ben Ben Seawald's. Like that type of dude has very much leaned into this. What does Calvinism say about being really bad at rapping? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it said that God determined before the foundation of the earth that you were going to be really bad at rapping, but we'll get into that. Does anybody here believe that? Does anybody here believe that? So, but my, it is, it's trendy in the same way that those things are trendy. And I think it does appeal to deconstructors because a guy who grew up in the IFB and always maybe had a taste for nicer things and was not encouraged or allowed to pursue that he gets out of the ifb he deconstructs a little bit and he's like oh i always wanted to drink fancy nice whiskey like i want to role play the movie casablanca um i want to drink nice whiskey and smoke cigars and wear nice suits and there's nothing wrong with that um you know he i want to grow a beard i've never been allowed to grow a beard before i went to hiles anderson and had to shave twice a day you know i i don't necessarily fault a guy in that position for going for those things that are so trendy for deconstructors. Like I get what you would want to, 
Um, especially like cis guy preacher boys that grew up in the IFB. But Calvinism has kind of become part of that trend of things that deconstructing guys do. And having it associated with these other, you know, the whiskey and the cigars and the beards that are clearly appealing to a man who's deconstructing from fundamentalism has led to Calvinism being very trendy. So do you want to know my take? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My take is that Calvinism is the branch of Christianity most closely aligned with the theory that we are all living in a simulation. Yeah? Okay. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, because I I see, I find this topic interesting because uh, Calvinism comes from uh, the Protestant Reformation. While it predates uh, the Enlightenment era by like a century, give or take, it, it is at its core a topic to do as much with philosophy as it is to do with theology. And we all know, and, and it is French as well, So, and we all know that, that uh, all French people are philosophers, or, or France has the most philosophers, I believe. Let's get into some of the history of this. Um, Calvinism is a doctrinal, well, I was going to say it's a doctrinal belief. That's not really accurate. It is a belief system. And I'll explain why a little bit more as we tease out these core doctrines. But this belief system arose hand in hand with the Protestant Reformation. The I think we we tend to oversimplify the Protestant Reformation as Martin Luther did it, but that's that's not really accurate. There were a lot of people diverging from the Catholic Church in a lot of different directions. Um, and the church uh, had a problem with selling indulgences, which I don't perceive to be particularly moral. But the church had a lot of problems. The church was going in a lot of wrong directions at the time. And so it makes sense that a lot of different reformers saw a lot of different issues and split off from the Catholic Church for a lot of different reasons and in a lot of different directions. John Calvin was a French reformer who first introduced the doctrine that bears his name in the 1530s. Other reformers, so all of these reformers are writing papers and essays and books and new translations of the Greek New Testament and just writing, writing, writing like something that you would see in the musical Hamilton. And they're reading each other's writings and they're writing agreement letters with each other's writings and writing rebuttals of each other's writings. So as Calvinism began to become more known, Other reformers, such as Martin Luther, adopted some parts of Calvinism and rejected other parts of it. So you will see bits and pieces of Calvinism in other, in in many different faith traditions, but you don't see all of the pieces together in every single faith tradition, if that makes sense. So about 70 years after John Calvin debuted the doctrine of Calvinism, for lack of a better word, uh, came Arminianism. So Arminianism came about in the early 1600s, and it's named for the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius. It's the formal opposite of Calvinism. I think that's kind of like, if you say Arminianism is the opposite of Calvinism, that's something I've said before, but in research for this episode, I don't think that's as accurate as I thought it was previously. I think that saying that is kind of like saying the Dallas Cowboys are the opposite of the New England Patriots? No, they're the opposite of the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay, but there are other football teams <laughs> that are neither. There are? 
the Dallas Cowboys nor the Philadelphia Eagles. I wasn't aware of them. Well, I'm, I'm glad I got to let you know about that today. Yeah. So um, Arminianism is very um, directly in opposition to Calvinism. I think that saying it's the opposite is maybe not quite accurate. So some fundamentalists would identify themselves as Calvinists. Some would identify themselves as Arminians. I think many IFBs in particular would say something like, well, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I don't follow the works of men. I only follow what I read in the King James Bible, which is what Calvin believed that he was doing, except for not the King James, and also what Arminius thought that he was doing, except for not the King James. All of these, (laughs) both Calvinism and Arminianism came into being because one guy really got into reading the Bible and thought that he had it all figured out. That's how both Calvinism and Arminianism came into being. What like so they were reading these verses and they were parsing like very like line by line and they were saying, mm-hmm. well, if this is li- if this part here is literally true, then that means this about the, uh, and okay. so if this verse is literally true, then that informs how we read this other verse and then that informs how we read this whole chapter in the Gospels and you could look at it, you could look at the New Testament. So I know I'm talking directly to somebody who does not know very much about the New Testament. You could look at it as um, a body of evidence or a collection of clues about how salvation happened and what it's supposed to mean to be a Christian and so many other facets of Christian religious practice and how a person interprets those clues is going to determine what they believed about how salvation happened, how we personally attain heaven, and what it means to be a Christian. Some of those clues are incredibly clear. Do this thing. Don't do this other thing. Okay, thanks, bye. Others of them, as much as it's more comforting as a Christian to think that they are absolutely crystal clear, a lot of them are not. This is a a work of that a, a written work that has been translated, as we've talked about, in and out of multiple different languages. And how you define one English word can change your entire theology in some cases when you're interpreting the New Testament. That uncertainty is not comfortable, especially for those of us who grew up fundamentalist, but that it is built into studying the New Testament. And that's something that we kind of have to, we who are uh, Christians do have to deal with. So (laughs) Calvinism is one complete system of interpreting all of those clues to put them together into one cohesive puzzle. Arminianism is another way of interpreting all of those clues and putting them together, but the picture that the puzzle makes is completely different. Calvinism came about predominantly because of the perception that the Catholic Church taught a works-based salvation. So at this time in history when this doctrine was coming into being, Catholicism was the predominant method of practicing Christianity, the focus of the church was on the sacraments, and Catholics were came to believe, like everyday Catholics, not clergy, came to the belief that fulfilling the sacraments was the thing that would get you to heaven, rather than God's grace being the thing that would get you to heaven. Well, people couldn't really read, could they? Right. So there's there's a whole mess, right? (laughs) People couldn't read the Bible for themselves. The church was very corrupt. 
uh, people were maybe more focused on how to have food and and heat their homes than the finer points of doctrine. They're just going through the motions, but the motions are the things that you do. And, and churches in Latin, which is a language that they don't understand. So, so Calvinism, um, like the Reformation itself, hinges on the idea that the Catholic Church had it all wrong. You don't have to do activities like fulfilling sacraments to be a, like or being a member of the Catholic Church in order to go to heaven. The core of Calvinism, like the general teaching of the Reformation, is that it, it is God's grace that takes a person to heaven, not any singular particular action that a person did or did not do during their life on earth. Calvinism takes that general idea and just runs with it, just goes way, way down that logical rabbit hole. And the basic teachings of Calvinism can be summed up using the acronym TULIP. So T-U-L-I-P, each letter stands for one of the five points of Calvinism. Okay, so do you want to walk us through the five points of, of Calvinism? Mm-hmm. So let's start with the letter T. T is for total depravity. I will try to explain alongside each letter, like whether the IFB believe in it or not. So total depravity is a doctrine that the IFB would believe part of, but not all of. The Calvinist belief about total depravity is that humanity is totally sinful. All people are born sinful. You are a sinner from birth, even before you ever do your first sin, because you are descended from Adam and sin is genetic, as well as being a thing that people can choose to do. Also, because humans are inherently evil, no human action can be fully pleasing to God. Humans are incapable of truly loving or seeking out God on their own. So this reminds me of when we talked about the Jack Hiles uh, child-rearing books. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. When yep. he said, when he, he quoted scripture saying, we are born speaking lies, which was basically his, his, his reasoning for saying, if your child is screaming, it's because they're lying to you and you should ignore them. That is the part of total depravity that the IFB would agree with. The part about all humans being inherently sinful, sinful from birth, or genetically sinful. The part where the IFB generally fall off of the Calvinist belief is that Calvinism teaches that no human action can be fully pleasing to God and that humans are incapable of truly loving God or seeking God. So in the Calvinist viewpoint, and this is where it really gets into philosophical realms, is if you give a lot of money to charity, it is not possible for you to do that out of the goodness of your heart, because at least some part of you is doing it for egotistical or selfish reasons. Or you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of when I was a kid and I was in Little League. Some of the dads in Little League would just be like absolutely impossible to please mm-hmm. no matter how good their kid was at baseball. They would always just be like not good enough. You have to do better. Yeah. <clears throat> Calvinist the- God will never truly be pleased with your actions because he sees the ulterior motives behind any good action and that spoils the whole thing. What I'm about to say is very weird, but uh, believe it or not, IFB God is more chill because IFB God (sighs) sees the ulterior motives behind good actions. But if you've done your best to minimize those ulterior motives and repent for what you can't get rid of, 
your actions truly can be pleasing to God. Wow, IFB God sounds extremely reasonable. IFB God seems like he understands the thing that he created. Um, on this, yeah, IFB on God gets a point issue, on this on this on one issue. This issue and this issue alone <laughs> on zero other issues. Well, maybe like one or two other issues, but we, we'll get to those. This is... So the IFB <laughs> will use the analogy of a child drawing a picture for a parent the parent sees that this picture is flawed. It's not perfect. The kid colored outside the lines a little bit, but they see that the kid did their best and they love the gift. So the IFB are on board with the everybody sucks so much part, but they don't get behind the you can never, ever please God part. So Calvinist God isn't putting their kids artwork on the refrigerator. Right. Exactly. That's horrifying. Yeah. That's a uh, little bit. Why did you even have kids if you didn't want to put their art on your refrigerator, man? Uh, we'll get to why God created people under <laughs> Calvinism. We'll get to that. <laughs> so I so Calvinist God is like never can never truly be pleased with a human action. Uh, IFB God is more like well, you have to try really, really, really hard to please God, but it is technically possible. So, okay, so in Calvinism, you can never be good enough for God. Is striving for perfection an exercise in futility? Or or, or are you, like, supposed to try anyway? That's the question. It's an exercise in futility that you actually have to do, which I will tell you, I'll, mm. I'll tell you why later. So the question that we're dealing with and that we're going to deal with over and over here is can a human reach out to God, or are we too sinful to even reach out under our own will? Do we need help from God to reach out to God? Or are are we so completely, so totally depraved that we are incapable of even having the desire to reach out to God? So it's how sinful we because all we you know we all agree that humans are sinful creatures. But how sinful, how bad really are we? And Calvinism is like the worst. And then Pelagianism is like, oh, not that bad, really. And then semi-Pelagianism is like, eh, pretty bad, but not that bad. And then Arminianism is like, eh, medium bad. So bottom line, Calvinism and Pelagianism both recommend striving for perfection for exactly opposite reasons. But in Calvinist teachings, striving, striving for perfection is something that you are obligated to take on, and I'll tell you why later. Let's move on to the you in TULIP. Okay, go for it. So the you is for unconditional election. Unconditional election is the part of Calvinism that I think I heard the most about growing up. The teaching is that God was present before the creation of the world for an undetermined amount of time because time didn't exist yet because God hadn't created it yet. But there's a, there's a scriptural basis for that in Genesis. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of scripture verses actually that speak about this non-time, time before time. <laughs> uh, if you wanted to Google all these verses, a really common phrase in these verses would be before the foundations of the world. A lot of the verses are in the New Testament. I found one in the Old Testament. Uh, there are several, but the one I pulled from the Old Testament is from Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90 is a psalm that was written by Moses. Verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. And then a New Testament example, 
<clears throat> would be John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus speaking to God the Father says, quote, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So those are some scriptural backings for like God existed before there was earth and before there was the concept of time. So in that non-time time before the creation of the world, the doctrine of, of unconditional election teaches that God, who is omniscient, uh, knowing everything, knew that they were going to create the world eventually. And they knew each person that was going to be spawned from the creation of the world. And they knew all of the events that would ever happen in all of the world down to each moment of each person's life. And God knew all of this before time existed and before the world was ever created. And in this non-time time before the creation of the world, God decided once and for all, done deal, unchangeably, who they were going to save and bring to heaven and who they were not going to save and send to hell. So unconditional election is also the part of Calvinism that I think I heard the most about when I was learning about it in history class in school. And this is why I say that Calvinism is so heavily rooted in philosophy, because this is basically just a determinism. The philosophy. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's determinism. <laughs> but with God being the divine power behind it rather than uh, like nuclear physics or, 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 or science or whatever. Yeah. So determinism is the philosophy that no one truly has free will and that you have never made a decision completely on your own. And all human actions are the result of outside influences and therefore inevitable. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> so Calvinism is that, but with God. Calvinism is it is a system of belief and all of the points are some to some extent dependent on each other and inform each other and that's what makes it a system and not just like an a la carte like oh I, I'll take this part and leave that part um if you believe some of these things you're not a Calvinist unless you believe all of them but with that in mind Calvinism often gets boiled down to unconditional election and irresistible grace, which are kind of two sides of the same coin. I think that's, it is, the unconditional election is, it's the flashy part. It's the, um, it's the part that's, that's the most bombastic, <laughs> easy to talk about. It's the, it's the part that when people say, what's Calvinism, people are saying Calvinism is, is the, is predestination. Yeah, That's it's the idea that, that that you don't go to heaven because of any particular choice you did or didn't make, but God chose whether or not you were going to heaven before the beginning of time. So, so the Calvinist view, very similar to determinism, is that God knew all of your actions, not only the spiritual elements of your faith and your salvation, but every single minuscule thing that you will ever do before the creation of the world or time itself. And God chose, or in the Calvinist vocabulary, elected some people who would receive salvation on the sole basis of his will. And this is where it gets very specific because, and we'll, we will come back to this again further down the line and we'll explain it in more detail. But God did not choose who would be elected and who wouldn't based on whether you did a specific action like praying the sinner's prayer, going to church, identifying as a Christian, or anything else. God chose based on his will 
not based on anything that you did or didn't do when God was watching your life played out before it even happened before the beginning of time. So Calvinism still teaches, here's another layer of complication, Calvinism still teaches that in order to receive justification, uh, justification meaning salvation, meaning going to heaven, a person has to do what the fundies call getting saved. In order to go to heaven, you still have to put your faith in Jesus. Calvinism can split off on this a little bit. So some people would say that God foreknew who would and wouldn't put their faith in Jesus, and God chose to extend his grace and elect only those who would put their faith in Jesus. Other people, a more classical Calvinist view would be to say, no, very literally, God elected some people for heaven and some people for hell, and those who he elected are the ones who are going to get saved. The unconditional in unconditional election is the belief that this election, this choosing, is not based on any good deed that the person would do in the future or any sin that they would commit. It is solely based on the will of God before the creation of the world or before time itself. So, of course, this is where a lot of the anti-Semitism that is associated with Calvinism comes from. Would you like to expound on that? Yeah, because basically it means that God decided that the Jews would reject Jesus. Right. So this is this is a logic problem more than a theology problem. But if God chose some people to accept Jesus and other people not to, then that means that he chose the Jews to reject Jesus and therefore to go to hell. And it, it feels like a trap. Yes. Because that would mean that God set up an entire group of people to reject Jesus and then punished that group for doing the thing that he set them up to do. Yes, but also, say you meet somebody and and you believe that God has chosen this person for eternal punishment. That makes it very easy to dehumanize that person, and it also justifies all nature of horrific crimes against that person if mm-hmm. that person is a low person anyway. Mm-hmm. in your value system where you're saying the thing that matters is whether or not you're going to get into heaven. So if if this is your belief, I think <clears throat> another thing to point out would be that if this is your belief, you don't know if the person walking down the street next to you or the cashier at the grocery store is elect or not. You there's no There's no real way of knowing because even if somebody doesn't look like what you perceive a Christian to look like, they could be somebody who is elect, who is going to heaven, and just hasn't become a Christian yet, but they will because God chose them to before the beginning of time. But if you see somebody who is visibly Jewish, then you know they're not elect. So that also could potentially lead somebody who believed this to commit hate crimes or to be okay with them happening. Not to say that not to say that any Calvinist is somebody who would commit a hate crime by any means, but it's that could lead someone to do so. Of course, this also presents a different issue because the logical conclusion of the deterministic nature of this theology is that all of the suffering that is on your people is suffering that was preordained. So if somebody like so if somebody does commit a hate crime against you, God decided that that would happen to you. Mm. Um, and then right. if you extend this philosophy to mass murders, then you get the belief that 
um, God preordained the Holocaust against his own people before the beginning of time. And I have heard people say that the Holocaust was a punishment sent by God to punish his people for rejecting Jesus. Um, Yeah, that's a bad one. Who said, was that in the IFB? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that in the IFB. Um, And I should make it clear that I won't stand for that because that's a load of Um, just in case that wasn't clear by my tone. (laughs) That's not a mainstream belief within the IFB anyway, is it? No, but it's, I wouldn't say it's, I, it's not mainstream, but I wouldn't call it fringe. It's more of the thing that I would associate with Steven Anderson and his type people than I would with, um, yeah, most IFB. Yeah. But you'd have to, but you have to remember when you're making that generalization that the new IFB and Steven Anderson's group didn't split off from the mainstream IFB until like what, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. When I was a little kid growing up in the IFB, people who would now consider themselves in IFB and people who would now consider themselves old IFB were still hanging out together and attending the same conferences. So they were all still mixed in together. Those two groups had not diverged yet. Yeah. And just I'm just making this isn't a, a problem that's unique to Calvinism. I mean, because like especially among Protestant reformers, I mean, Martin Luther hated the Jews more than Mel Gibson. Uh, hmm. go, go look up that. It's wild, man. Um, I mean, it's it's not unique to the Jews either. Like you know, you you could, uh, uh, according to this philosophy, you could say, "Oh, God preordained the Rwandan genocide," or "God preordained the AIDS epidemic." Right. <clears throat> so this can this can get applied to a lot of human tragedies or or human abuses to excuse it by saying that God ordained it. I think we're both talking around the idea that the god of Calvinism can seem very cruel and unloving to people who don't ascribe to Calvinism. I do understand that's not how Calvinists see it. They, I think their perspective, to as, as best as I understand, their perspective would be that God's love is being dispensed to the appropriate people with perfect justice and balance every time. I I mm. want I really want to be balanced because that is just not how I see God's love. And to me personally this just seems cruel and awful. I can't conceptualize God as a being who would set people up to reject themselves knowing that the punishment for that rejection would be eternal torture. Nor can I see God as a being who would foreordain or put their stamp of approval on any hate crime, uh, much less a, a genocide. So how is, because if, if I'm thinking about that, how is that different from the medieval doctrine of divine right to rule by kings? They do seem related. Like God chose certain people and certain families to rule over others. God chose certain people to go to heaven and other people to go to hell. Yeah. And I like the other way this bothers me, like, as I've said um, many times before, I moved from Portland, Oregon to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is currently experiencing a pretty serious gun violence epidemic that is largely affecting like black communities in North Philly and like West Philly, not so much where I am in, in like center city. I, but like, I personally, I refuse to believe that these communities are singled out by God to have more violence. Like that seems like a, that seems, that seems wrong to you, right? 
Sure. That seems wrong to me as well. Like, I mean, my, and like the, because the other side of that is that my community where I live was singled out to be more prosperous. I don't know. I refuse to believe that I was somehow born to be a better and more moral person than the people who get swept up in that simply because of where I live or how I grew up. You know what I'm saying? Like this, the, this idea that things were predetermined, you just have to take one extra step and it can get like really racist and really problematic really easily. Yeah. And I just, I do know that there is a, I guess I would use the word rational um, in the sense of, of logic-based Calvinist explanation for this. The problem is that no matter how many times I read it and read different takes on it, I simply can't understand it well enough to express it in my own words. So I I want to leave space for, I know that there are people who sincerely believe this and they have an explanation for how this does not make God cruel and awful. But I also, I don't want to try to get into the weeds of explaining it because it just, it I can't. There, I What I do want to do, I want to go back to the theological side of this and the scriptural side of this. There are several New Testament verses that support the idea that God at least knew before the world was created who would be saved. And how the IFB deals with those verses is very interesting. So one verse is Romans 8.29, and that one is going to be in King James. Uh, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. <clears throat> Another one would be Ephesians 1.4. Uh, I have this in ESV. I, don't, I, <laughs> I didn't write down what translation I used for this, and I should have. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So those verses support the idea that God at least knew who would and would not be saved. The verse most often used as a rebuttal to this, and ironically, a verse that was also really crucial to my deconstruction, <laughs> is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So two thoughts on this, a couple okay. thoughts on this. Yeah. The first is that I, I often find that many ideologies, ones that I often am less thrilled with, are ones that are the most self-complimentary to the people who follow them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you, like if you're if you're a Calvinist, then you're saying like, and and you've gotten saved, and and you're like a, a Calvinist and, and a Christian that way. You're basically it's it's very self congratulatory, being like, congratulations, God picked you for this. That means that you're going to heaven, mm-hmm. and it's better that like, and not all of those other people who aren't. Yeah, I just saw this on Twitter the other day. Have you ever met a Calvinist who didn't believe that they were one of the elect? Yeah, see, that's an issue. Of course, the answer would be no. No, you wouldn't, because that would be antithetical. Second thought, I get the idea that God would predetermine that Jesus would die and that his followers would get to go to heaven. That's That makes sense. But is it fair to extrapolate literally all of humanity from this? You know what I'm saying? If you if you don't mind, maybe I can go into like a sermon illustration on this. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, so say you're writing a book and you've got your main characters. You know roughly what's going to happen to them. You know roughly what their journey is going to look like. And you know what the end of the story is going to be like. But you don't 100% know 
all of the side characters are going to factor in and and what their ending is going to be. Like you have your your main like four or five people and you know what's going to happen to all of them. And then there's everything else alongside of that that maybe it takes you more time to work out. So it would make sense to me that God knows roughly what's going to happen to Jesus and what important people are or aren't going to follow him and roughly how many people are going to follow him, give or take. But it doesn't make sense to me that he would decide all of those things down to the last person, like in in, yeah. in Christian philosophy. It, <clears throat> it, but I, once again, I'm not a Christian, and so none of this is really my thing anyway. So what the Second Peter 3, 9 verse, why that seems like a really good rebuttal to Calvinism is because the doctrine of unconditional election, uh, the unconditional part is that God chose only based on his will. And then Second Peter 3, 9 says God is not willing that any should perish. So how would it be God's will for anybody to perish if the election is only done based on God's will. This also, however, brings up a really big question for me, which is why do we pray? Or more specifically, what is prayer good for beyond worshiping God and asking forgiveness for our sins? If every outcome is already determined, why would we pray and ask for the outcome that we want? So if someone that we love is sick, what good is it going to do to pray and ask for them to be healed? God has already foreknown and predestined before the beginning of time whether they are going to be healed or not. So what good would it do to pray? One might assume that the Calvinist answer would be, well, God knew before the beginning of time whether or not you would pray for this person to be healed, and then God decided whether he would heal them based on whether you were going to pray or not. But that's not actually accurate at all to the doctrine of Calvinism. The doctrine of Calvinism would state that all things come to pass because of God's will, irrespective of what choices humans make, because those choices are already set in stone before you ever make them. So just like determinism, this brings up the question of free will, which I do not like <laughs> because it gets in my head in an unpleasant way. Why? What, how so? Because I get like I get into this like thought spiral of, okay, well, if I have free will, then I could put on a huge feathered hat and paint all over my face and go run up and down Burnside yelling Shakespeare sonnets right now. That would be legendary. It I, it would. I should make a TikTok from doing you should that. Do that. Um, I would. I I mean, if you did that, I would be like, right on, Sadie. Go do that. And and, and that's that not would... harmful. You might block traffic a little bit, but you know, uh, it's Burnside. Keep Portland weird. Right. Um. I mean, I could I could go down and dance with my feathered hat and paint all over my face in front of the Keep Portland Weird song. That is that's the sign, like which is yeah. like on the side of Dante's. That's not that far from where I live. I mean, you could go. It, people would be like, I think it's a little early for Mardi Gras, but you know, if so. I if I have free will, then I could go off and do something like that. That would be an atypical use of my time and and an atypical thing to do for my personality. But if everything is, if every human choice is a result of previous external forces, then there was something in my life that made me feel like running up and down Burnside in a feathered hat with paint all over my face yelling Shakespeare sonnets was the correct choice. And it, it means, I think that philosophy makes me 
if that philosophy is true, then there is no such thing as human creativity or human originality. And the creativity and originality of the human species is one of my greatest sources of hope in the world. So that's why that philosophy makes me feel so uncomfortable. So we're going to tease all of this out a little bit further when we get to the L in Tulip. Before we move on, though, I want to do the IFB view on unconditional election. The IFB view is that God did know everything that would ever happen before the world was created or time began, and God did know who would and would not get saved, but that God didn't choose any of it. So the IFB view of God's foreknowledge is like someone watching a movie. The Calvinist view of God's foreknowledge is like someone writing a movie. The IFB view is that literally anyone can choose to get saved, and it's 100% that person's choice to make. Each individual chooses of their own free will at some point in their life to accept or reject Jesus. This is the Arminian view as well, that salvation comes as a result of the rational faith of an individual human who decides to accept salvation. So the question that's being asked and will continue to be asked as we work through TULIP is did God choose you because he knew that one day you would choose him? Or did you choose God because God chose you first before the beginning of time? Or did you and God choose each other equally? Who chose who and when and why and where? Let's keep moving because <laughs> we're going to continue asking those same questions in increasingly complicated ways. And I'm loving this. You're loving this. And I'm coming from a perspective Here. where getting saved isn't even a thing. So it's just purely academic to me. <laughs> so, okay. So the L in Tulip is for limited atonement. So here's the, here's the next question that Calvinism attempts to answer. If God knew before the foundation of the world or time itself who would receive salvation, if God elected before the foundation of the world who would be saved, then is it really accurate to say that Jesus died on the cross for everyone? Limited atonement is the teaching that Jesus actually only died for those who were chosen by God to be saved. So I don't want to misrepresent this because this is another place where it gets kind of sticky. Even within Calvinism, people will kind of nitpick over this. this. The question that this brings up is, if Jesus only died on the cross to save some people, does that mean his death wasn't powerful enough or sufficient to actually save everybody if everybody had been elect, was there enough atonement on the day of Jesus' crucifixion to go around to everybody who ever was born on the planet Earth? Or was there only enough atonement present on that day for the people who were elect from before the beginning of time? R.C. Sproul, who is a, a well-known Calvinist minister and teacher, took aim at non-Calvinists in an article series I read for this episode. He wrote... I don't think we want to believe in a God who sends Christ to die on the cross and then crosses his fingers, hoping that someone will take advantage of that atoning death. This is an overly snarky take by Sprawl that definitely shots fired. He's characterizing non-Calvinists as having a wimpy view of God. Oh, well, God wow. just hopes that someone will take advantage of Christ's death. But his view is, is kind of having a wimpy view of Christ, who is God. So how is that? <laughs> Right. So, so his take is clearly <laughs> snarky. His, his take is like very bad faith. It's very snarky. It's not a hundred percent 
wrong about the non-Calvinist view. So doesn't it say that that all that so all of mankind should be saved or something like that? Or am I misremembering? Uh, or, are you talking about John three sixteen? That whosoever know. believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Maybe. I know I've I've heard okay, I've also just heard so many Christmas songs in the past few weeks, uh, because I live over a Christmas bar or a bar that was a Christmas bar during Christmas season. And I I know some of them said something about all of mankind, and mm-hmm. I don't know which ones, but it, it all just kind of like bleeds together for me. That's the question that we're dealing with here, the theological issue. In this article, Sproul is attempting to defend the question, well, if Jesus's death only paid for the sins of some people, does that mean it wasn't enough for everybody's sins, or was it only enough for the sins of the elect? And Sproul's response is really shady. It's it's very along the lines of, of course, Jesus's death is enough for everybody <clears throat> who is elect. But everybody, <clears throat> all the elect ones. Well, that's, all the, ele- that's the elect ones, <laughs> they're the only ones who are really people. That's kind of the, the vibe that I'm getting from here, man. Is that that, that's not, not elect, stated not- in the doctrine of Calvinism. But I can see why you'd come to that conclusion. I mean, like, look, I mean, you just have to look at what the... Like, what did you say about the fruit, the people's actions? Mm-hmm. By do their people, fruits, you shall know them. Do people treat people who aren't elect as less than human? I've seen evidence of that. Should they, <laughs> according to their doctrine? No. Oh, of course. Do they, they in shouldn't. real life? Know them by their fruits, man. Know them by their fruits. It says it in right there in the Bible. Does that mean that God is going to or, or has to send down like Jesus Jr.? To get everybody else? Like, Jesus was good enough for all the elect people, and then you... Well, the people um, who are not elect were predetermined before the beginning of time to never be saved, so there didn't need to be any grace left over for them. I don't know. I just I just don't understand why God wouldn't want to save everybody. That, like, that doesn't make sense to so, me. So that's what I'm saying. This is when I when I read that verse Second Peter 3 9 earlier, God is not willing that any should perish. That was a huge turning point in my personal philosophical and religious views. That's the verse that turned me on to universalism before I had any kind of vocabulary for that. And this is where Calvinism comes most into conflict with my personal values. Because upon reading the Bible, I can't accept the idea of limited grace, limited atonement, or as Sproul said in his article, he prefers to call it definite atonement. It's a veiled way of saying there isn't enough grace to go around. Like, God only made enough grace for the people that were chosen to receive that grace. This portrays God as an exclusive five-star restaurant that only people who are on the invite list can get into, only the people with reservations can get into. And I see God's grace more like an infinite buffet with enough food to feed everyone in the world five times over that is constantly refreshing and never runs out. I believe that there is too much grace, a ocean of grace, more grace than mankind could ever consume or need or use. Man, it seems like Calvinism is the f- them kids of uh, <laughs> religious philosophy. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what about like I, I have all these pe- all these uh, we're all God's children. Everybody's God's children, right? Um, yeah. What about the ones that aren't going to heaven? F- them kids. <laughs> 
Well, hell? see, the, the Calvinist view would be, no, we're not all God's children. Only us special people are God's children. I mean, everybody, it's like, you know, Animal, animal Farm, where we're all equal, but some people are more equal than others. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Because this theology is contradictory to the Catholic view. Because the Catholic view of God is that he's like up there managing most of the things that are going on, but he is not really paying attention to whether or not you get a parking spot or whether or not you stub your toe. So, right. So you, you don't really, you know, pray to God to get you a parking spot. Maybe there's a saint for parking spots and you can bug them um, and just hope that they can help you out. But that's not so you, the Catholic view. Um, this is not formal theology. This is uh, more vibes theology, if you will. But the Catholic, the Catholic view is more like God is too busy to deal with whether or not you get a parking spot. Seriously. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to text Ray and ask him what saint I should pray to if I want to get a good parking spot. And at the end of the episode, I'll tell you guys. How about that? Okay, that sounds fun. (laughs) So to update the list of the questions of philosophy and theology that we're dealing with here, how much did God know about the choices we would make before he ever started the process of creation? And how many of his choices did he base on these actions that he did or did not know whether we would take. How involved is God in our daily lives? And the biggest question of all, is there truly such thing as free will? So this reminds me, do you remember when we talked about Kelly Haven Stickle? And how she's really into the whole daddy God thing. Then we found out later that she was in fact raised Presbyterian, which is a Calvinist uh, denomination. And so that totally tracks. Right. She's... She's very comfortable relying on this idea of a God who has already made all of her decisions for her. She likes the idea of being an NPC in God's game, and that definitely tracks with her having a Calvinist background. Oh, I just heard back from Ray about what saint to- Oh, already. Yeah, so anybody who's listening to this, if you want a good parking spot and you're Catholic, pray to uh, St. Francesca Javier Cabrini. Is it Javier or Xavier? I think it's Xavier. Okay, well, it's with an X. St. Francesca Xavier Cabrini. So I do want to point out before we move off, uh, Kelly, uh, what we call uh, Daddy God on this podcast, the idea of a God who is intimately involved in your daily life and constantly in conversation with you and answering small prayers. Uh, I want to make it clear that this has seeped into American doctrines far outside outside of Calvinism. Uh, This concept can be found all over American Protestantism in general. So this is not specific to Calvinism, at least not anymore. So we need to go take up the offering. (laughs) And when we come back, we can continue to tackle these big questions. We'll pick up on the I in the TULIP acronym. Sounds good. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. I, hey, um, I usually get to say that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna take over your jobs one at a time. It's an irresistible takeover irresistible. because you're totally depraved. True. No, I'm wearing my um, silk smoking jacket. I am smoking a cigar. I have a glass of whiskey because we are talking about Calvinism. So we've talked about, let's see, what have we talked about? We've talked about total depravity, uh, unconditional election, and limited atonement. So we have two more letters to cover in TULIP, which is the the acronym for the very basics of the doctrine of Calvinism. Are you ready to jump into the I for irresistible grace? Yeah, hit it. Okay. The basic idea of irresistible grace is if you're chosen, you're chosen, and there's nothing you can do about it. Leave it to the Calvinists to make heaven sound as unappealing as possible. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you're going to heaven whether you like it or not. That's exactly Don't make it. me turn this car around. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. And of course, they, the Calvinist and Reformed teachers have maybe nicer ways of saying it, but that's that really is the exact belief. If you're elect, God has chosen to extend grace to you, and there's nothing you can do to run or hide from that grace. It will find you and it will save you. God, that sounds like a, a like like a Jewish horror film. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know that you know this new movie that's out, Megan. I heard that movie's really good. I heard it's really good. But imagine like a, a version of that, but it's called Calvin. <laughs> I see where you're coming from with this because <laughs> the teaching of irresistible grace. So if you, Gavi, were one of the elect, um, obviously right now you are not accepting God's grace, you know, the Christian God's grace through his son, Jesus. Uh, at this point in your life, you are not accepting that. But from a Calvinist viewpoint, if you were one of the elect, God's grace would follow you throughout your life, and no matter how hard you intellectually try to resist and reject Christianity, eventually you would give in and accept that grace, whether you really wanted to or not, even if it was on your deathbed, basically God would find a way to change your mind. Man. Well, technically, just to dig in a little further— Calvinism does not teach that God would force grace on someone who didn't want it. It teaches that if you were one of the elect, 
God would work in your heart in order to change your mind so that you did want grace so that you could accept it. Which you may notice sounds a lot nicer, but it does not change the meaning very much at all. Yeah, it's, that's... It's still, it's a total <laughs> denial of your free will and your humanity and agency as a person. Well, Calvinism is basically just determinism. So, of course, free will doesn't exist to them. Right. So, the doctrine of irresistible grace, it seems straightforward on the surface, but it actually brings up additional theological rabbit holes to fall down because, of course, it does because it's part of Calvinism. So, the big question here is, who does the saving? Is it the human or God? And this may seem unrelated to irresistible grace, but this is actually where this question belongs in a discussion of Calvinism. We've talked before about the IFB view of salvation, which on this particular point lines up almost perfectly with Arminianism. The IFB and Arminians both believe that a person comes to God by an act of their free will. If I could present an analogy, God has prepared a individual contract for an individual person that says your sins are forgiven, your sin debt is paid, you can be forgiven of every sin, and you can be assured a place in heaven. And Jesus is the the financial backer for that contract. Jesus is the one who paid that sin debt. So the debt, the, the financial backing is there for the sin debt to be paid, but the contract doesn't take effect until you sign on the dotted line. So the the salvation doesn't happen. God has already signed the contract, but the salvation doesn't happen until you as the other party also sign the contract. In the IFB and the Arminian views of salvation, it is completely possible for someone to have all of the facts, to have an understanding of this, to look at the contract, to believe that Jesus's financial backing is sufficient to fund the contract, but still choose not to sign the contract, thereby rejecting salvation, choosing to send themselves to hell, circumventing the will of God for their soul, and exercising their free will. Because we know scripturally, God does not will anybody to go to hell. It is not God's will, uh, well, depending on how you interpret that verse, right? But in the IFB or Arminian view, God's will for everyone is to get saved and go to heaven. But you can choose to act contrary to the will of God, thereby condemning yourself to hell. So, in the IFB and the Arminian views, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. He prepared a way for you to go to heaven. But God's plan does not function if you do not metaphorically sign this contract of your own free will and God will not grab your hand with his God powers and make you sign the contract. So in that scenario, who really saved you? Were you saved by God's grace? Were you saved by Jesus's death? Or did you save yourself when you signed the contract? Or was it a joint effort between God reaching out and you accepting his offer? Is this the thing that people really spend time debating? Yes. <laughs> I, my God, I could not be bothered. This is. Yeah. So everything that we've uh, talked about in this episode is something that people spend extensive amounts of their lives debating. Uh, but this is one of the things. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Pe like get a hobby. Like that's, I don't know. That's, that's all I got. Like learn to knit 
you know, play an instrument or something. Like you could be, people could be making hats for homeless people, but instead they've got to like fight over the shit on Twitter. This is like, the, uh. I mean, it, it's important <laughs> if you think that the fate of somebody's eternal soul rests on whether or not they've got this straight, because if you are a Calvinist, then you might think that someone who was saved the IFB way is in danger of having put too much faith in themselves and not enough faith in God and therefore not going to heaven. Although you're not motivated to do anything about it because if they're one of the elect, then God is going to change their mind and fix it. And if they are not one of the elect, well, too bad for them. On the other hand, if you are someone who believes the IFB view or the Arminian view, you might think that a Calvinist, since they did not choose God of their own free will, is still going to hell because choosing God of your own free will is part of getting saved. So if you if you really are sold out to one of these theories, you might think that the people who are really sold out to the other one are are going to burn in fire forever, which would make it pretty important. So there's another, there's a second rabbit hole that I find really interesting that comes up under the topic of irresistible grace. And that is the question of how does a person come to God? And the twin question of whom can the Holy Spirit work upon? This is where the IFB and the Arminians split ways. The IFB doctrine and the Arminian doctrine is very, very similar on that first question we asked, which is the question the question of who does the saving or who makes the final choice and whether or not you are saved. Where they diverge is the questions of how do you come to God and who can the Holy Spirit work on? The Arminian view is that a person is not able to use their free will to respond to God's offer of grace until the Holy Spirit works in their heart first and influences them toward accepting this offer of grace. So in the Arminian view, God offers you the your sins are forgiven contract, and in your sinful human heart, because you are tainted by the sin of Adam, genetically sinful, you will have reservations about signing God's contract of you can go to heaven. And you might kind of want to do it and kind of not want to do it. And you're, you know, you're human and you're sinful and you don't really know what you're doing. And the Holy Spirit is not changing your heart to force you to want to sign the contract. But the Holy Spirit is definitely in your ear like, hey, man, you really ought to sign that contract. It's going to be a good idea. God's love is really powerful and you're going to go to hell and you don't want that. And you're a really sinful person and and God loves you anyway. And like kind of not forcing, Mm. not changing your heart, but influencing you to try to get you to, to entice you to, to accept salvation. The IFB view is completely different. The IFB view is that the Holy Spirit is completely absent from anyone who is not yet saved and therefore is unable to work in their heart to bring them to salvation. The only thing that the Holy Spirit can do to someone who is not saved is convict them about their sins and make them feel bad about their sins specifically. Sidebar, (laughs) this particular doctrine is one thing that the IFB fight over constantly and I have seen churches fall out of fellowship with each other over this teaching. Really? Yeah, because one church is, 
Uh, they know the Holy Spirit cannot speak to someone who is unsaved at all. It's 100% free will whether somebody comes to God. The second church will say, no, the Holy Spirit can speak to those who are unsaved, but only to convict of sin. And then a third church will have the Arminian view. The Holy Spirit can influence you towards salvation. Well, isn't that what happened to Paul? Uh, what happened to Paul is a little bit different. He got knocked off a horse. I mean, literally, though, he was riding through the desert, you know, like uh, Lil Nas X. St. Paul and Lil Nas X commonly compared. And Jesus showed up and he was like, you're my guy now. And Paul is like, damn, I need to change everything about myself. I have to look this up because I, I thought it was right? God, not Jesus. Was it God? That, like, I thought it was Jesus. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I thought they're the same thing. According to the IFB, they're the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. It's two different persons of the Trinity. I, I Christianity does not make sense to me. This is... Cubby, <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel like it is time to let you in on a secret. It doesn't make sense to most of us either. We just we just roll with it. <laughs> Man, I feel like I'm, I, I no, it, it does like it. It does feel like a lot of times when we talk about this theology stuff, we're getting very much into the reads in like uh, uh in like Star Wars slash Game of Thrones slash. Dare I say, like to the level of nonsensical that it becomes, this is like Doctor Who fan theory uh, uh, level stuff. So believe it or not, this is an incredibly simplified and basic explanation of only the major doctrines of Calvinism. Like, I guarantee we're going to get a thousand comments like, well, I can't believe you didn't mention this doctrine. No, you didn't even get into that doctrine. I do not want to do an eight hour long episode about Calvinism, because if we talked about all the, that's what we would end up with. And people would still and like, be like, why did you talk about this? Well, the thing is that it, it's not, uh, it's not my belief. And it is a, it is a practiced Christian belief. And I don't want to just come in and tear it apart because I don't feel qualified. Uh, I don't feel like I am yeah, I don't I don't feel like I'm qualified or knowledgeable enough to just tear somebody else's belief up. And and I'm not going to and I'm not going to represent it the best. What I do think I'm qualified to do is explain the basic doctrines of it. Also, I looked it up and you are correct it was Jesus specifically who came and knocked out the apostle Paul. See, that's what I'm saying is that But there... that doesn't have anything to do with this particular doctrine because that was Jesus and not the Holy Spirit. <laughs> So, oh, right, because they're different. Wait, why? Right. Uh, so, so the IFB view mm -hmm. is is uh, depending on what church, but the view that I was raised with is that the the Holy Spirit can only contact somebody. It's like the Holy Spirit has a restraining order. Uh, they can only contact somebody who is not saved in order to make them feel bad about their sins and get saved but the Holy Spirit can't influence them toward salvation outside of them making them feel bad about their sins part. Which I have to say, it leads more credence to the accusation that the IFB view uh, is works-based salvation because in this scenario, it is the sinner themselves who must proactively take on the work of bringing themselves to salvation. So to sum it up, let me see if I can put this in perspective because I know this has been incredibly confusing. Calvinists believe 
that God does 100% of the work of salvation. Arminians and like semi-Pelagians and a bunch of other groups would say that God does the first 50% and then it's the human's responsibility to do the second 50%. And then the IFB view would be that God does 100% of the work of salvation, but humans are fully responsible, 100% responsible for activating or setting in motion the work that God has done. I guess the IFB view could be compared to um, God is the electrical power generator and the electric company and all of the light poles and power lines and the power connectors that get the electricity into your house, but the lights don't come on unless you turn the light switch. And if you don't turn the light switch, that's on you. You're going to live in darkness. So that's a vast simplification. I do think it's functional. How is it that through this entire episode, the IFB have seemed like the sane ones? So in all honesty, probably some of that is my bias because I was taught the IFB views uh, and I was taught on purpose to provide a rebuttal to Calvinism. So I was taught Calvinism in the same way as I was taught evolution, although I was probably taught Calvinism a little bit better than I was the doctrine of, or the teaching of evolution. But I was taught it from the perspective of here's what you need to know in order to try to take down this teaching and make it seem foolish. So I was well prepared for this conversation, but I absolutely acknowledge that there's some bias in how I treat Calvinism just based on where I came from theologically. Of course, the difference between evolution and uh, uh, and, and Calvinism is that like you have something that's supported by scientific evidence, and then you have something that's all entirely like theological, like it's all conjecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's it's religion versus religion, not religion versus science. Which I hate that I always hate that they're always pitting religion versus science against each other. It makes me feel like I'm an edgy teenager in Portland again. I think we should do an, another science episode before long. Like it, like I said a few minutes ago, some people who are staunch Calvinists would believe that non-Calvinist views of the gospel are so distorted that someone who believes in them could not possibly be saved. And a lot of people who believe in something other than Calvinism believe that Calvinist views of the gospel and salvation are so distorted that someone who believes them could not possibly be saved. So some of the people who hold differing beliefs are a little more lax. They think, oh, you're wrong, but God will sort you out in the end. And like, oh, God knows your heart. God knows that you're sincere. You're fine. And they can, you know, they can have one of those after the Bible conference dinner table just for fun arguments about this and walk away friends. But that's not typical. And that's not, that's, um, there are a lot of people who can't have that kind of friendly discussion about this. Many people, they see these views as such a big deal and such a deal breaker that they don't think it's moral for them to fellowship with those who hold the opposite view. And that filters down into some of the even more niche Twitter arguments that we see right now. Um, I did see this morning somebody accusing a a prominent ex-fundamentalist podcaster of being a Calvinist. Um, and uh, people just fight but they fight over over more niche things as well like um we were talking about um the different types of atonement that people believe in and that's why 
it's such a big deal to some people because some people do hold the view that if you don't have this close enough to write, you can't be saved. There's one other topic I want to cover under irresistible grace, and this is what I was talking about when I said that striving for perfection is kind of a requirement of Calvinism. So that is the question of how does someone know if they are part of the elect? So that's a good question. So do Calvinists have the same issues with salvation doubt that the fundies do? Apparently they do. So the worry for them would not be, am I truly saved? But the worry would be, am I truly one of the elect? And what if I'm not and I just think I am? Okay, so is there like a test? Yeah, Calvin had actually three tests for that a person could apply to themselves and see if they were part of the elect or not. Oh, perfect. It's like a BuzzFeed test. Can I take it? Yeah, let's take it. Let's take it. Okay, okay let's take it. I want to find out what soda uh, truly reflects my personality. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so question number one, have you professed faith in Jesus? No. Okay. Do you live a highly disciplined life in the true pursuit of sen- sinlessness? <laughs> no. I almost said sinfulness, and that would have probably been a yes. <laughs> Do you love the Christian sacraments, specifically communion? Absolutely. I, I mean, honestly, I've never tried it. I don't know. So... Uh, so based on Calvin's three tests, you are not one of the elect. Wait, so communion that has wine in it, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I love I love wine. So and and, and crackers. I love crackers and wine. So okay, sure. So yeah. unfortunately, you need to have a yes on all three questions in order to be a member of the elect. Damn. Yeah. That's exactly. Really specific. That's so specific. <laughs> That's so few people. <laughs> Sorry. You, you made a joke and you didn't even realize you did it. Because you said, I damn. Did? Yeah, because you said, damn. <laughs> and if you <laughs> are not elect, that's exactly what happens to you. So, so yeah. Um, that's pretty specific. What Calvin was saying was, if you have all three of those factors in your life, then you should chill out and assume that you are part of the elect. With the rise of Arminianism after Calvin's death, there was a synod among Reformed churches, Calvinist churches, to make this even more specific. How do you make it even more specific? That is so specific. Well, apparently people were having worries, which is why they needed to make it more specific. You know the the like when you have like the zip code and then there's all the f-ing numbers after the zip code that you're just like oh this is your extra zip code but nobody ever uses it. Yes. You ever see that mm-hmm. like that's what I feel like it is. I know the five digits. I don't know any of the shit that comes after that. So it's that is a a good analogy. <clears throat> it seems that people Calvin's three tests weren't enough and. I imagine that's probably because of points number two and three. It lives a disciplined life in the pursuit of sinlessness, and people would worry, well, do I do I do enough? Is there a sin that maybe I'm in denial about? Which is the same 
it's the same crinite crap that we were talking about in the Jesus Camp episode. It's the same thing. Is there a hidden sin or is there something that I should know is sinful, but I don't know? And I'm just going about my life sinning all the time and not realizing it. Or do I love the sacraments enough? I mean, I think I love them. I think that I am committed to communion, but do I, do, am I really? So the, the Synod was the Synod of Dort in 1630. It wasn't called specifically for this issue of Calvin's three tests of whether you were elect. It was more generally arguing between Arminianism and Calvinism. Is there any way we can get along? No. Okay, then which one of us is right? And the Calvinists legally, for lack of a better word, since law and religion were intertwined at the time, won this battle. Big topics of conversation during the Synod of Dort were the who chooses who question. Does God choose you because he knew that you would one day choose him? Or do you choose God because God chose you first? Uh, Or did God choose everybody and then only some people choose him back? Is it like on The Bachelor uh, where the bachelor gets to give out all the roses? Or is it more like Bachelor on Paradise where Bachelor in Paradise where like one week one person has a rose and the next week the next person has a rose? Or is it more like when people return roses on The Bachelor? Or maybe it's like Love Island with like a recoupling uh, situation going on. Right. Like which reality TV show best (laughs) represents uh, predestination and election? (laughs) So, oh man, I should have used that as an analogy for this whole episode. (laughs) Oh my God. That's fantastic. Like a lot of people would have hated it and then 10 people would have loved me forever. I'm going to make a TikTok about that. My view of God is that it's like Queer Eye. He's like Queer Eye, you know, where you're having a bad time in your life. And then he comes in and he's like, this is how you make food more delicious. This is how you dress yourself. This is uh, uh, how you get the energy that you need in the world. So God God wants you to be your best, (laughs) but you have to work. You have to be willing to put in the work. You have to be able to do the groundwork, man. Uh, Actually, I love that. If we could ever get Bobby Burke to come on this show, that was that's like one of my dream podcast guests for this show. Is it time all- for people to start tweeting? If you are, if you know Bobby Burke, if you know anyone who knows Bobby Burke, please uh, uh, get in touch with him and try to get him because he was raised fundy. I'd love to get him on for Pride Month. That would be f- awesome. I would, I would love. To- I would adore that. Yeah, that would be fantastic. He would be such a good guest. He would. So back to the Synod of Dort, <laughs> the the questions were, which reality show represents the question of election? Who chooses who? And the other question, how does a person know if they are one of the elect? Can anybody really be sure that they are one of the elect? Or is that pridefulness and therefore a sin? <laughs> what do we do? So the consensus of the Calvinist side at the Synod of Dort on that second question was uh, a longer list of uh, qualifications. If you truly have faith in Jesus, if you feel truly sorry when you sin, if you feel truly joyful when you do right, then you can rest easy and assume that you're one of the elect. There's not really, there is not technically 100% assurance of salvation in Calvinism from this perspective. Because you can always have doubts like, 
do I feel sorry enough when I sin? Or do I feel good enough when I don't sin? Or do I really have true faith in Jesus? But I think this would, I imagine this would give a person like 95% assurance, which is pretty good. The IFB pitches this idea of, are you 100% sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? So hard, so hard that it traumatized all of us who grew up in it. But as we've talked about at length, a whole bunch of IFBers say that they have 100% assurance, but I don't think they really do. I don't think Mm. I ever experienced that because I don't, I don't know if I really believe in the concept of 100% assurance in anything. I am very confident that my husband loves me, but I don't think there's really a way to be 100% sure about what's going on in another human being's mind. Are you 100% sure that Charlotte is your daughter? Yes. (laughs) See, there you go. (laughs) Yes. I I figured you'd remember that. (laughs) I was was there at the beginning and the middle and the ending. You might have blacked out there for a minute. Somebody could have switched it. (laughs) I was just carrying a bowling ball that kicked for nine months. (laughs) No, but it's it's hard to have complete assurance of what somebody else thinks of you. I will say that I am more confident that my husband truly loves me than I ever was about my salvation in the IFB because there's always, always a, a baked in doubt because Calvinists are worried about, you know, well, do I feel bad enough when I sin or do I have enough faith in Jesus or do I feel good enough when I don't sin? But the IFB are worried about whether they put their faith in Jesus enough, whether they got saved, and if they meant it enough when they prayed the sinner's prayer. So really, Calvinism versus IFBism, there is not a clear winner on the assurance front. And that is a stunning indictment of Calvinism. Well, not to say the quiet part out loud here, but this is really illuminating to me how many Christians are sitting around secretly worrying about whether they're really going to heaven or not. And this isn't This is not people who are doubting or deconstructing or who have not been well-educated in their particular theology and their way of practicing their own faith. This is the people who know the most about their particular theologies still getting tripped up in the details to the point that they're lying awake at night physically ill with worry that they might be wrong about something and still going to hell. It's almost like it's doctrinally legislated imposter syndrome. Yes, and a doctrinally legislated anxiety disorder. And I I think what this really, reading about the, the Synod of Dort, what it really showed me is that a lot of people have these doubts. And if you think of, within Protestantism, and if you think about Catholicism, they do not offer quite 100% assurance of heaven either. They get close, uh, but they don't they, they offer 100% assurance of God's love and grace, but the assurance of attaining heaven is not something you can put your finger on. It's not. I, and I am now starting to doubt whether any Christian religion actually offers 100% assurance of heaven. And I don't say that to be a bummer. I say that because the only cure, the only people I know that are not a tiny bit worried about this are two types of people. Who? The first type 
is people who left Christianity and fully weeded it out of their heart and quit believing in any of it, which is a very difficult choice, and it is the right choice for some people, and it is not the right choice for others. And even those people will often admit to still having a much smaller amount of doubt, a much smaller amount of questioning and doubt, like, well, what if they were right and I'm wrong? And it it can take a very long time. I think a lot of people are able to work their way through that and not worry and not have doubt, but it does take a while from, from the sample size of people that I've talked to about this. That's my impression. The other group of people who have, if not zero worry, but significantly less worry about whether they're really going to heaven are the people who remain believers, but ultimately relinquish control and fall back on a level of faith in God that that you could not have imagined a few years or a few decades ago, which is the difficult, a very, very difficult choice and is the right choice for many people. But I think the the only people who have less doubt are people who completely deconstruct, become non-believers, over it, done, and spend time weeding it out of their heart, or people who ascend to a level of, I don't know what's going on, I don't have all the answers, I really am not convinced that I'm right about anything, but what I believe in my heart is that God's got me. I really I really think those are the only people I know that, that have the that have the closest you can get to peace and assurance. So the question of assurance and whether it's possible to truly know if you are one of the elect and how would you know leads us nicely into the P in TULIP because that's another really big question that was dealt with at the Synod of Dort and that is the question of perseverance of the saints. So the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is the Calvinist doctrine that teaches beyond Calvin's tests or the test of the Synod of Dort, there is one further thing that solidifies your status as one of the elect more than anything else, which is persevering in your Christian faith and actions until the time of your death. So if a person is truly elect, God will supernaturally, just like God supernaturally sent the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and change your heart to desire salvation so that you would accept salvation, God will also supernaturally work in your heart to sustain you in your faith, and you will never turn away from your faith. This is not to say that that this person would never sin. It's even, it's possible for someone who is elect to fall into serious sin, even like Dave Hiles' alleged and proven levels sin. But that person, if they are truly saved, will, if they're truly elect, will return to God and repent and start over to continue to try for, to try for perfection from that point onwards. So Calvinism also institutionalizes forgiveness of abusers in the way that we so heavily criticize the IFB for. It seems to do that. But more than institutionalizing protections for abusers, I think the the more damaging thing it does or the equally damaging thing is that it demonizes anyone who deconstructs or changes their faith. So the teaching is, if you 
once believed that you were elect, if you professed faith in Jesus, if you were living as best as you could to strive for perfection, but then you turn away from your beliefs, you deconstruct, you change core foundational beliefs that you used to believe. Uh, in other words, things that that normal people and people of faith do on a regular basis, uh, then you were never truly elect to begin with. You were faking the whole time. Also, it's like no true Scotsman. Yeah. That's a religious belief. Yeah. So Calvinism technically teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. So once saved, always saved, just like the IFB, but for a totally different reason. So the reason in Calvinism is that God preserves his elect and prevents them from turning away from the faith. Therefore, if you turn away, oh, you are just never elect. You were always chosen for hell to begin with. Ah! That's pretty toxic. That's, that's I horrible. I really hate this one. Um, well, I mean, that's what the IFB does. They're saying, well, you were probably never saved to begin with. Right, right. So this has leaked into not just IFB teachings, but all sorts of different denominations and church groups. I have heard people tell me stories of having this horrible thing said to them that, I mean, primarily in the IFB and the IBLP, but I've heard this everywhere. I've heard all sorts of people tell me that this was something that was said to them when they deconstructed, when they changed to a different, more progressive denomination, when they walked away from faith, when they came out as LGBTQ, when they came out as agnostic. (laughs) I've heard so many stories of people being told this, and it's heartbreaking every time. Because, and if you want a really great takedown of this, I recommend you listen to the Preacher Boys podcast, specifically the episode where Eric uh, comes out and says that he's no longer a believer. He did a, a really, really wonderful, logical takedown of, yes, I was truly a believer. I was just as much of a believer as you are. And that has changed. Man, I remember that show. That was. I think that was in October of 2021, like fall 2021. I have never seen so many people turn on one person so quickly. Oh, that, that was, was awful! Freaking wild. There was like no, it was people who, because because you remember that there was like that he was doing a show and he was chronicling the abuse and he would run afoul of various fundamentalists because he'd call them out for being abusers or he'd call them out for for. Uh, still associating themselves with abusers and stuff like that and being like, this is not a safe person. You can't have this person or like, mm-hmm. or, and, and like calling out a lot of the more uh, uh, toxic belief systems, but there was still a lot of like people who were practicing, who, who were, who were Christians, who were evangelicals, who were, who were, you know, in, still in that vein, maybe they're ex fundamentalists, but they're, they're mm-hmm. still in that vein and they would still f- with him. You know, they're, they're yeah. like, yeah, well, he's still our guy. And then he came, man, and they all, it was so quick that they were all just like, we disavow every, ever like having associated with this man to begin with. And we should have seen the warning signs that this guy was a bad, a- like mm-hmm. it insane. It was the nuttiest yeah, I thing. had suspected that he was tolerant of LGBTQ people. But <laughs> that was the worst. Yeah. So this teaching of the, of uh, the perseverance of the saints, I, my personal opinion is that this Calvinist teaching that has leached so strongly over into mainstream evangelical non-Calvinist and like semi-Calvinist circles is responsible for a lot of that vitriol. Uh, Eric, of course, being who he is, 
knew that he was going to get those comments and addressed it in his original episode where he explained his faith change and and what was his thought process behind that because it's Eric and he knew exactly what they were going to say. So by all means, check out his episode uh, because he does a, a much better takedown of that than I can. And it's very worth listening to. And, you know, I mean, what do we say at the beginning of every episode that it's a uh, freedom of religion, but freedom of, of religion is also freedom to not have religion if you don't want it. So, right. But if we don't have free will. Well, yeah. Calvinism says there's no such thing as free will, except that it doesn't, except that it does, except that it doesn't, except that it does. Uh, they have different words for it. Oh, we got uh, it. We, you you understand. We're done with this episode. <laughs> this is... Oh, my God. You just totally convinced me that you understand this as well as I do, which is not very well but it's just like it's it's all the same with the serial numbers filed off and none of it matters is is my is, is my takeaway so i want to go back to the the sign out of dort because the per, uh, perseverance of the saints was another thing that was being deba- debated there the arminian view was that or is that you can truly be saved and then if you turn away from god you become unsaved The Calvinist said, no, that can't happen. You're either chosen, done from the beginning or not chosen, done from the beginning. And while the IFB vehemently opposes Calvinism, they hold the same view on once saved, always saved, just for the exact opposite reasons. So the IFB somehow believes the opposite, actually, of both Calvinists and Arminians on this particular doctrine. The IFB believe that a person who is saved is less likely to fall into serious sin, reject God, turn away from God, because the Holy Spirit who now lives inside them, who can get inside them once they're saved, but not before they're saved, remember, can influence them to do good things and not do bad things. But that person still has the free will to um, tell the Holy Spirit to buzz off and do whatever they want, like whatever their sinful nature tells them to do, because you still have a sin nature after you're saved. And they can do whatever they want to do, whatever evil Dave Hiles alleged and proven things they want to do. Jack Hiles proven things that they want to, or Jack Scott proven things that they want to do. And they are still saved. They are still going to heaven. God's just going to be disappointed in them when they get there. So Calvinists, you're saved from the mm. beginning and God will keep you saved forever, or you're not. Arminians, you can get saved, get unsaved, and then get resaved down the road if you want to. IFBs, once you become saved, that is unchangeable, but God can slap you on the wrist when you get to heaven if you do something really bad. So believe it or not, this has been an incredibly surface level discussion of Calvinism. There are so many sub doctrines and subcategories and details that were just way too much for this overview. Do you have any questions? Is there anything that you want re explained? Do you uh, think you have a pretty good handle on like the very, very bare bones basics of this? I have so many questions but also like no questions that i actually want to have answered because i like i know we talk about fringe theology or whatever because like we did a couple weeks ago with the theories about what jesus will look like in heaven this part here this really calvinism really feels like a christian fan theory to me i think it makes sense how this came about when you think about how it was born of 
the Reformation. Yeah. And how it became one of the predominant doctrines of the Reformation, because the the whole thing, as we were talking about in, in the King James Bible episode, there was so much going on, so many shifts in culture and art and music and philosophy and just a seeming explosion of all of these different changes. And one of the many, many things that changed is that literacy became more common and People wanted to read the Bible for themselves in their own language. They wanted to make new translations of the Bible from a language that they understood less well into a language they understood better or into from a language that they read, but the people around them couldn't read into a language that the people around them could read. And that led to actually reading the Bible and realizing that a lot of what they were being taught by the very corrupt church at the time was tradition. And I am very pro-tradition in a, lo- in a lot of ways, a lot of parts of it. But these people had the sudden realization that they had been conflating tradition with scripture. And they wanted to get to sola scriptura only by scripture, only what is actually in the Bible, which I think is a pretty valid way to approach Christianity when you think about where they were coming from and what their experiences had been. But then they had to fight about what was actually in the Bible and what do these words that had been translated through two or three languages and over 1,300 to 1,600 years actually mean? (laughs) Okay, what does this word predestinate? What does that actually mean? I feel like I'm in the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit and people are arguing over whether or not Tyrion is Tywin's son or if he's a secret Targaryen. That's how that's how I view all of this. That's like where I feel like I am right now. It's like, ugh. Yeah, I don't fault you at all for feeling that way. It, it's literally a bunch of smart people, um, the people who came up with this, without people without the internet, nothing else to do with their time but argue over the fine points of God said that he saved us. Okay, sure, but how? And when? And did we have to help? And in what order did these things happen? And one million other questions that we've enumerated throughout the course of this episode. And now, like 400 years later, people are fighting about the same questions on Twitter. And I know that, okay, we've been a little snarky about the people who fight on Twitter about this, and I think that's fair. However... This is the same pe- the same things that very smart people were fighting about a very long time ago. And I think maybe if this was worth a fight 400 years ago and it's worth a fight now, then maybe it's actually an important thing. Uh, I don't think that whether you believe the right thing or the wrong thing about Calvinism or Arminianism or whatever has any bearing on whether you go to heaven or not. But maybe it's a question worth asking like so many other philosophical questions that have been in play for hundreds of years. Maybe like maybe it's okay that people want an answer to this, even if I'm not one of the people who particularly cares about having an answer to this. So obviously we know that the Presbyterian Church is a, it, that's a Calvinist denomination. And certain other Christian churches, evangelical ones, uh, Baptist ones, Anglican ones will sometimes be Calvinist in theology. But I think the the place that I most remember learning about Calvinism when I was in school was when we learned about the Puritans. I do not remember hearing about the Puritans being Calvinists. Really? I, yeah. What? I not no. I remember what? learning that they were 
Protestants, but not Calvinists. I don't remember. I learned that Roger Moore, who was the founder of Rhode Island, was apparently IFB, which I doubt. Mm. Uh, I was taught that the Puritans were like basically the IFB of their day because they stood up to the evil Catholics and Anglicans. But I'm not sure if I've ever heard about the Puritans being Calvinists before, so I would love for you to enlighten me on that. They never taught you that the that the Puritans were Calvinists. Not that I recall. I'm sure. I mean, so Abeka, here's my guess. Here's my guess from my PTSD brain that does not remember everything. Here is my guess. I bet Abeka in their children's history books, their like younger grades history, probably taught that the Puritans were Calvinists. And the reason I think so is that I don't see Abeka turning down an opportunity to look down their nose at somebody. I bet. The Abeka, like sixth grade history or whenever they do American history for the first time, says something about, you know, the, the Puritans did their best to follow God's call, but unfortunately they were led astray by the heretical teachings of John Calvin. Like that is very much the tone that I would expect from an Abeka book. I don't remember ACE teaching it. Then again, it's ACE. You read the passage, you write down the answers, you go score and you move on. Even if you're paying attention, it's very hard to retain anything at all. So it's totally possible that I was technically, quote unquote, taught this and just did not remember it. So the Cal, because the Calvinist theological belief of election, that is a, a, that was a core influence on the idea of American exceptionalism. You, you see where I'm. You see where I'm going with this, because especially the Puritans were one. They they believed they had been chosen by God to go to the New World, the the ones in America, and their extremely strict behavior came from a Calvinist desire to live a sinless existence. So the the, the so called Protestant work ethic also comes from the Puritans as well with their diligence and their unbending nature, also a trait of Calvinism. So that's one of the reasons why I thought it's so interesting that you were taught the Puritans were the greatest, but that you weren't taught that they were Calvinist. That's So now I'm now I'm putting the pieces together of, oh, that's where Manifest Destiny comes from as well. God ordained to take over this entire continent from ocean to ocean. I don't I don't know, dude. I I very well hmm. may have been taught this and it just completely went in one ear and out the other because or in my eye in one eyeball and out the other because this would have been in my ACE years. Um I don't I don't know. I don't know if I was told it and didn't remember it. And you also had what? a head injury, so Yeah, yeah. I also uh hit my head pretty hard at Hiles Anderson, so it may have fallen out on the Hiles two stairs and just never come back. So uh, I, I guess I have maybe just like one more main question. Um, okay. So I understand why evangelical theology, like easy believism, is appealing to people. And I understand why Catholicism would be appealing to people. Why would Calvinism be appealing to people? I think that's a really easy question to answer. In Calvinism, the belief at the core of it all is God's got this. Like something bad happened to you, God ordained. It was God's will, and God cannot wish you harm. So if something terrible happened to you, God has a purpose and is is going to make some is going to do this for a reason because something else is going to happen that's good. Something good happened to you, God ordained it. 
you don't have to worry about, oh, am I being too prideful because of this good thing that happened in my life? You just say, it was God's will to give me something good. And then you're not freaking out about, am I too prideful over this? I think I've spoken before about my Calvinist roommate in college. She had a family member who was a very, very not, very much not a Christian. And I remember talking to her about this and thinking and and asking her, well, don't you worry about whether your family member is going to die and go to hell? This was a huge concern to me. I was at the time desperately worried about my family members who were not saved IFB Protestant Christians. And she said, no, I, I pray for him. I pray that God will send the Holy Spirit to work on his heart and uh, bring him to salvation. But I believe that God has ordained whether my family member will go to heaven or hell and that there's nothing I can do to change that. And it wasn't that she was unconcerned or cold, but the worry didn't consume her. And I think that is something that's really attractive about Calvinism, because if you're able to intellectually buy into it, if you are able to truly believe it, then you can talk yourself out of a lot of worry and anxiety. So this is pretty much a similar argument to why people find peace in determinism, because they believe that their decisions are not up to them and they're just experiencing the process of those decisions happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, that either Calvinism or determinism is not for me. Uh, it's not something that that works for me personally, but I think I can really understand why it feels, as one article I read uh, said, it feels freeing to people. And I think I can I can logically comprehend why it would feel that way. It doesn't line up well with my philosophical or religious beliefs, but I, I really think I can empathize and understand why it would feel right to other people. Is it freeing? In like a good way, or is it freeing in the same way that like when you're IFB and you turn off your brain and just like go along with it? I don't know. Never been Calvinist. Hmm. Okay. I don't know. Um, to me, it seems like it would be freeing in the same way as accidentally falling off a cliff would be freeing. <laughs> because oh God. Well, you know, I, I, well, okay, I, I live or I die. There's uh, there's an ocean down there on one side, and there's some rocks down there on the other side, and uh, I guess the wind is going to figure it out for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I could see that described as freeing as well. But then there's people who jump off cliffs on purpose to land in large bodies of water, and a lot of them survive. And there's base jumpers uh, out there. Yeah, uh, just... <sighs> Which is one, <laughs> that's a hobby you'll never catch me doing. One one thing, one positive thing I can always say about Calvinists is I do think they have a very sincere faith. The, the faith is something that I've been dealing a lot with since leaving the IFB, and it's still a very touchy subject for me and still something I think my views on are still changing. But the Calvinists that I have known have truly had faith in that teaching and they have dealt with the doubt that is baked into Calvinism better than the IFBs that I have known have dealt with the doubt and questions that are baked into IFBism. So personally, I think I can admire that type of faith, even though the faith is in a system of theology that I don't agree with. 
So you had a Calvinist roommate. Were you afraid that she wouldn't get into heaven because she was a Calvinist? Not really. So by that point in time, I had already started slowly deconstructing. So I think I figured at that point in my life, if her faith was in Jesus, then she was good to go. And if she had some details mixed up, that God would sort it out in the end. As a kid, I think if I had known a Calvinist, I would have been pretty worried. But of course, the Calvinist that you would have known would not have been worried. Right. (laughs) Okay. So that's like, that's the basics. We did not talk about a lot of the trending Reformed and Calvinist pastors. We name-dropped a few. I I just want to make sure people know we didn't talk about it because we're probably going to talk about it next week. I wanted to cover... Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to cover the the basics of the teaching itself, and then we will... We will jump into the newer Reformed and Calvinist teachers like R.C. Sproul, whose articles uh, I did reference in this episode, and new Calvinism, new Reformed doctrines. If it doesn't come up based on our material for next week's episode, I will schedule an episode in the near future so that we can cover all of that side. I thought we needed to get to the, the, the ins and outs of the five points before we started on that. Yeah. So next week, uh, if you can't remember or if you haven't guessed yet, we're talking about the book that Ginger Duggar Vuolo has. uh, Is is it out yet by the time this episode comes out? It will come out on the same day that this episode releases to streaming. Okay, so if you're listening to this on release day, I'm probably listening to the audiobook to Ginger Duggar Vuolo's new book that she's coming out with. And Sadie is probably like mainlining coffee and (laughs) trying to read it so that we can finish the book and and, and write an episode about it before uh, and, 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 and record and produce an episode about it before like a week. Before now. it becomes old old news. Yeah, so we're going to come up with that episode, and that's going to be... Yeah, it, the book is... I'm excited to talk about it. It is being sold, not as a tell-all, but as a... Uh, it is being sold <laughs> as a, this is what I don't agree with, and this is what was toxic in the teachings that I grew up with in the IBLP. Um I don't so she is a her. Calvinist. She is a Calvinist because she is she's now recently a Calvinist. No, see, I'm saying that she is a Calvinist because she says it's not a tell-all, but then she says a bunch of words that make me think, yes, that's exactly what a tell-all is. <laughs> <laughs> but no, there's different terminology for it that you have to know, and it's different. We promise it's different. It's not. It, it's not. <laughs> so we will. We will see. I think. I think the Fundy Stark community at large is not particularly optimistic about this book. Uh, I think the the uh, take is that oh she's you know she's teasing all of this new information to sell books and there's not really going to be anything in there. But I could I don't know I could see there being some fun details. I guess we're just going to have to find out together next week. Spill the tea, honey. Spill the tea. Um... Yeah, and, and so next week, join us for that. Uh, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, hit that follow, hit that subscribe button. Help us out by doing that. Uh, join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus, and our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. And you can join in the 
Calvinism discussion today oh, and, and talk to us about, about uh, 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 Calvin, if you really want to, um, and give us your spiciest Calvinism takes. Uh, you can join our Patreon for an extended version of today's episode, an extended and more fun and ad-free version of today's episode. And uh, you can follow the podcast on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast, on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, socials, let's go. <laughs> it's all about the bacon and the sparrows, Gobby. It's the bacon and the sparrows. Two smokes, two, two socials, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow me on uh, Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Y'all have a wonderful day. Bye bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.